number 10 for Brendan Taylor. We're talking about Rivada, we're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, take it. The Midwigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates Rick Cole. He cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Great to have you along. And uh, just a reminder, as I always do at the top of the show, if you're listening for the first time and uh, you'd maybe like to subscribe, you're probably listening via a friend of a friend or whatever the case may be. Well, you can find the Dean at Stumps podcast on all the major podcast apps or feeds. So your uh, Apple podcast, your Spotify, your Overcast, Google Drive, any of those uh, the Dean at Stumps podcast is easily available. You just simply search for the Dean at or for Dean at Stumps podcast. You subscribe and you can listen to some really magnificent interviews. The wonderful Kumar Sangakara, Graham Hick, Dave Houghton, David Gower, JP Dumini, the late Dean Jones. Many, many more fantastic interviews that I've been privileged to have throughout this year, despite all its trials and tribulations. Right, so this next one, well, he doesn't really need any introduction, does he? Um, he was definitely the loudest member of the Zimbabwe cricket team, always smiling and joking, very aggressive on the field. It was a bit more like a fast bowler in the way that he went about his business, but an absolute superstar off the field as well in terms of his personality. He um, also has an uncle that was an outstanding golfer, and uh, that, I think, is enough uh, clues for you to know that in this edition you are going to be hearing from former Zimbabwe left-arm spinner Ray Price. It's a long one, but it is an absolute beauty. So make sure that you have yourself a nice snack and a nice drink. Sit back and uh, enjoy Ray Price at his very best as he talks to us about playing golf with his uncle Nick to uh, even playing in the IPL a couple of years ago. So Ray Price is uh, very busy with the kids and uh, having a lot of fun with some of the younger kids coaching them and obviously being a, a big lover of kids, he does spend time with them and he's very good and very patient with them. And he starts off by telling us exactly how nice it is spending time, uh, spending time with the kids and watching them develop. Yeah, you know, and it's such a, it's such a privilege working with kids, eh? Because especially the young guys, they're like sponges, always keen to learn things. And it's it's so funny because... As you'll, as you'll know, just trying to coach people as well. A.B. de Villiers and guys like that make it really difficult for you to try and coach because they're all trying to play reverse sweeps <laughs> or seamers and <laughs> all sorts of weird shots nowadays that the guys are just so amazing at. Um, and just trying to get youngsters to understand that they need to have a base with the basics first is very difficult. Are you specializing specifically in uh, spin bowling coaching or are you um, trying to become the full all-round coach? No, just doing everything, Adina. Just trying to let them enjoy as much as they can. I'm probably a lot more of a coach that spends more time doing repetitive basics um, than trying to do anything outlandish. Uh, maybe when they start making hundreds and things, you can start thinking of that. But until then, yeah, just the basics and having fun. Have you ever at any point considered uh, becoming a specialized spin bowling coach? We certainly seem to have these various specialized coaches these days, fielding coaches, batting coaches, bowling coaches. And then at times we see, you know, spinners, former spinners looking after the spin department, be it for your country or your franchise. Is that something you've ever considered? Yeah, always, do you know what I mean? Because I'd love to do that. Under-19s is something that I really enjoy, hey? 
Um, they're just a, just a nice group of youngsters to work with at that age, uh, hungry to learn and just, yeah, they're not, not really too molded as well in their actions and things, so you can, you've got time to change a few things. Whereas when you work with the older guys, especially guys at a national team, are normally their actions are set and it's quite hard to try and change something, maybe mentally, but physically it's, yeah, it's quite different. Mm-hmm. So that under-19 age group is something that I really enjoy working with and, yeah, I would love to try and become a spin coach um, to specialise in that area would be fun, man. The surname Price <coughs> in Zimbabwe or is uh, very synonymous with an incredibly talented Zimbabwe is by far and away the best golfer this country has ever had and one of Zimbabwe's finest sportsmen as well, that being your uncle Nick. Did he have much of an influence in you growing up as to uh, what sport you wanted to play and you know your life in general? Because he seems that sort of a person who's not an in-your-face sort of a person, but he, he does seem to have very, very strong principles. How much of a part, if any, did your Uncle Nick have in you growing up as a sportsman? Not that much, Ed. You know, I think it maybe just the belief that it doesn't take someone special to do something. It just takes more dedication and spending more time out um, doing the things that you've got to do when other people are, are not working as hard as you uh, so from that point, definitely, I think, because uh, just remember him and my dad used to go, actually, we used to go to the river when we were kids, and uh, they would take a sack of golf balls with them. So in between fishing, we'd finish fishing at about 11 o'clock. And then for two or three hours, my dad and him would just um, go to the edge of the river and hit golf balls. <laughs> and so uh, it's just oh, just simple lessons like that. I think that that just clicked a few things obviously in my head realizing that even though you're on holiday you still got to think about work because um, obviously because you're now playing on a world stage you're not just dealing with the people at home you're now competing with everyone around the world so you've got to make sure you're working twice as hard as, as someone close to you did you i mean his his real time to shine was he became the world's number one ranked golfer in 1992 and, of course, uh, we remember that fantastic playoff that he had uh, against Tiger Woods when he beat the great Tiger Woods in 1998. Admittedly, a very young Tiger Woods, but even so, your uncle beat him. Um, it, one thing that really struck a lot of people was, despite the fact that he was based, I believe, in Canada, I think it was, that he was based, wasn't he? On, or in the States, certainly. In Florida, yeah. In Florida. Yes. Uh, he still played under the flag and was very, very passionate uh, of Zimbabwe. That's one thing that really... I think um, came close to mind as well. Yeah, I think once I think everyone's the same as once you live in this country and um, you get you get infected by it. It's such, it's such a <laughs> special place and just the people as well. So I think he just wanted to carry on that heritage. And I know he was um, quite involved with junior golf in Zimbabwe at the stage as well, um, trying to just uh, just show the way that the young guys here could also understand that uh, they've got a shot. It doesn't matter how small the country is that you come from. One of the people who also had a very pivotal part to play in your life growing up, who unfortunately we lost uh, back in, if my memory serves me correctly, 2010? Yes. Uh, was your, your late father, Tim Price, that was the brother of your uncle Nick. Just tell us a bit about your, your dad before we move on to cricketing matters. Yeah, oh, Dino Jeepers, man. I mean, uh, dad, dad maybe didn't have as much talent as Nick did, um, but he definitely worked as hard. And I think he probably had more of a coach's brain for golf than anybody else. Um, when you talk to a lot of people that got coached by my dad, 
he seemed to be able to put it um, into words quite easy to explain what someone needed to do um, to become a better golfer. And it's, it's quite a hard thing as a coach. I think not everybody has it. You might be able to show them, um, to be able to show them how to hit a seven iron, or but to actually explain it to them so that they can put it into practice is something, it's a true gift, eh? So I think my dad was one of those kind of people, um, very good with explaining things and how to get people ah, just to do things slightly better. Um, so I think as a, as a coach, he probably excelled more than as a player. Um, my uncle did really well, obviously. So dad was probably left... And I think it was quite nice in a way because he wasn't in his shadow then coaching as such. He was he was more of his own man. Where I think whenever he was playing, you're always getting compared to your um, younger brother as such. Um, I always laugh because whenever Dad tell, used to tell stories about him and Nick, because um, Nick was always at, behind him and his brother, and they would play at Warren Hills. And it was the only place that they could sneak onto the golf course because there was no fences in those days so they they could only play like three holes that ran along close to the road so they would come out of the bush and play i can't remember the numbers of the holes people who played warren hills will remember but and they played the three holes and then run back along the bush and play those th- same three holes again <laughs> and uh, uncle nick always used to whine at the back and say i'm tired and the other guys and you know my dad wanted to carry on going for hours so it was you know, some good stories and uncle nick was the one who was always saying i'm tired i'm tired <laughs> And look what he became. That's that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right. So uh, I think uh, what was it? I mean, it was a bit of a bizarre situation because your brother, Stuart, very, very uh, good golfer as well. Um, Dad, uncle played golf. The next thing you wanted to do was to, to become a cricketer. Was it sort of frowned upon, you know, not that you weren't going to be following in the golfing footsteps uh, with the rest of your family? Or did you, with immediate effect, gain uh, or get a lot of support? It was quite strange, Ed, you know, because growing up, obviously, it was all golf. I mean, I remember being pulled out of um, class at grade seven because my uncle was going to apparently going to win the British Open. So, and in those days, the only place that had a satellite dish was um, the race course. Yeah. So we trundled across the race course to go and watch. And he didn't win, but he came second. But, I mean, what a great, ah, oh, just so much fun to sit and watch it on the TV. I, I decided to have a crack at golf. And when my dad took me on tour to South Africa to go and play in their Sunshine Tour, he was playing, not me. I was just caddying and to go and have a look. And I, I, it really didn't flick my switch. Eh? You know, I was not happy. Um, it's a totally different mindset. You've, you're not playing as a team. Um, when you have a bad day, it's just you. Uh, you can beat your caddy up as much as you want or kick your bag, but at the end of the day, it's just you. And I struggled with that, eh? And then um, I was so lucky because Dad, Dad was the professional at Royal Harari. Um, right next door was obviously sports club. Yeah. And so I would go to the nets there and practice and play and muck around there. And I just found that cricket was definitely more... I just flicked my switch, eh? My brain was wired that way. Um, and I just, yeah, I just really enjoyed playing in a team where I think I could still have a bad day, but we would still win. Um, or vice versa, I'd have a good day and we would lose. So it was it was quite funny, but yeah, and golf. I think I didn't have the patience either, Dino. I just wanted to hit it like a mile. <laughs> I still now when I play, I need three yeah. caddies, Dino. One yeah. with a chainsaw, one in the tree with a GPS, and the other poor guy. He just he just carries the clubs. <laughs> so yeah, didn't have the patience, Dino. How old were you when you decided? Right, this is a cricket <coughs> is uh, what I'm wanting to be playing. Was it sort of teenage? Was it a bit younger? No, probably about 14, 15, eh? I decided that cricket was 
I mean, when I was seven, I really, that's when I, I really got passionate about cricket. Um, that's why I wore number seven on my back. Uh, but the, cricket was definitely my game in those days. I don't think I was that talented. I was a raw up-and-coming seamer, trying to be like Mitchell Johnson, but probably bowling at about, I don't know, pushing the high high 70s. So. <laughs> K's an hour, not miles an hour. <laughs> no, K's an hour, not chief as miles. I don't think I've moved that fast unless I'm in a car. You know? So, so, so who are who are some of the uh, when you started to realize that okay, I'm I'm not wanting to be like Uncle Nick. I don't want to be like Dad. I am Raymond Price, and I want to play cricket for my country. Who were first of all the the, the national players that you would have looked up to growing up? Because obviously, fourteen, fifteen years old, Zimbabwe were just on the verge of getting test status, but we hadn't had it yet. And then obviously with, you know, satellite TV was pretty much non-existent in those days. So were there any international players you could look up to and, and try and emulate or, or follow? And who were the, the national team players who you wanted to try and emulate? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so funny. I tell my kids now, we used to listen on the radio. It makes you sound like an old fart. Yeah, but that, but that's <laughs> old radio, radio listening is a good, that's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. I told her I got a good face for radio. That's what Gary Brent keeps telling me. But... Yeah, I think, ah, you know, we used to have so much fun there listening to the test matches. Um, there was a guy, a commentator called Austin Wilmont, yes. who we all used to uh, try and imitate and uh, take the mickey out of. He was hilarious, man. Yeah, obviously Grant and Andy, um, just listening because they spent 90% of our time betting. Um, and then I was lucky enough to practice a lot with John Tricos, eh? So he would uh, come in from the office. And then in those days, he was in his late 30s. Uh, so he would because he's a lawyer, he would come in at, uh, from the office at 12 o'clock, take his, all his suit off and everything and get, get ready, and then bowl for a couple of hours, put his, go and have a shower, put his suit back on, and then, and then head back to the office, <laughs> and then come back in the afternoon again and practice. So, yeah, again, just another guy who just worked out that he just needed to spend time bowling, um, and he got as many overs as he could under his belt, and that's why he could play test, test cricket when he was in his 40s. 45 years old. No, exactly. He's, he's, he's test debut for... Uh, one, a unique cricketer because he made his test debut in the 1969-1970 series for South Africa against the Australians. Was more well-known for the two catches that he took in the gully as opposed to his spin bowling. And then once again made a test debut for Zimbabwe in 1992 at the ripe old age of 45 or 46, which... And got a five-wicket haul uh, against India, which uh, must have been quite fascinating for you, given the fact that you uh, he mentored you quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, those Indians are amazing players of spin, obviously because of the decks that they play on. Uh, and in those days, it would have been even more pronounced because the wickets that they played on in India in those days were cheap or ragged. Mm. Um, whereas now you've got a lot more stipulation on your wickets and how they're prepared and things like that. But um, in those days, yeah. So for him to take five wickets against India and as an off-spinner as well, um, I don't think they had too many left-handers in their side either. So it's, yeah, it's a proper feat, eh? But just that's what's so hard to understand sometimes is that you don't have to be someone who spins a ball both ways or a mile. You just have to be someone that's accurate enough and then have your mental capacity as well to be able to work out batters. You made your test debut against Sri Lanka in 1999. Tell us about the very first ball that you bowled at Harare Sports Club <laughs> against Sri Lanka in 1999. I believe it was the third test match. Um, Zimbabwe had Sri Lanka on the, rap, on the racks due to some very, very good bowling by Edo Brandis, Henry Alonga. Along comes a very nervous Ray Price, lets it go, and what happened? 
Well, you know, what What most people don't know is that I was the first left-arm spinner to come up with a Dusra. And my first ball, I obviously ran up and bowled a Dusra and it spun the wrong way. And the poor Sri Lankan ran down expecting me to spin it the other way and it went through bat and pad. And then Andy Flower dropped the ball. And yeah, I would have had a test stumping off my first quarter. That would have been... A, all right, now, so for the uninitiated listening to Dean at Stumps <laughs> for the first time, because we obviously have a lot of listeners who are just beginning to <clears> find <throat> their way in cricket, so they obviously won't know some of the terminology such as doosras, googlies, and so on. Explain to the uninitiated what a doosra is. So basically, uh, um, I'm a left-arm orthodox spinner, so it means I should be turning the ball um, from right to left, basically. Um, and a doosra is, is when a left-arm spinner like myself, instead of turning the ball from right to left, turns it from left, left to right. right. So coming in towards a right-handed batsman. Um, and most left-arm spinners do turn it away, but I'm not a prodigious turner of the ball. So I think because I was so nervous, um, the ball didn't spin the way it was supposed to spin away from the batsman to my left. It actually, it actually skidded and went to his right. Um, so that foxed him completely and Andy Flower and at Andy the same Flower. time. <laughs> <laughs> did Andy, did he apologize to you? He, does, he, he was a hard, he was as hard as nails, wasn't he, Andy Flower? When you played against him, when you played with him, he really came across as an incredibly hard character. Yeah, you know, I can't even remember if he did, did apologize. I just remember being so nervous. Yeah. Um, I think he picked the ball up and threw it back at me. Uh, he used to call me Rusty. Because I was never very um, fast moving or anything, it was, yeah, always moved like I'm rusted. So. Well, he called you rusty, and of course, his nickname for Edo Brandis was Disprin because uh, Edo uh, wasn't too long before he always had a backache or an ankle problem or something. <laughs> so between uh, Rusty and Disprin, we had a wonderful team going there. But um, what, I mean, obviously, you unfortunately you missed out on the tour of England and the, well, the West Indies and England in 2000. That must have been very, very disappointing for you as well. Yeah, very sad, eh? Um, obviously, I mean, Dirk for Jun got selected ahead of me there, but he, um, was it Dirk or was it, was it Brian? Yeah, Dirk for Jun was the one-day spinner and Brian yes, Murphy, of course, was the, uh, was the leg spinner, the test spinner. Of course, yeah. yeah. And I mean, picking a leg spinner over a left-arm spinner was, um, that's the way it should have been as such. Mm. Brian was bowling well then as well. Um, and Dirk was very talented in the middle order as well. And being a left-hander made it um, easy for him to rotate the strike with the spinners and things. So obviously they they justified their selection as well. So they deserved to go on those tours. I was just very sad. Also, I think I wasn't ready, you know. Mm. Um, I think everyone, I was lucky enough to get a shot early. So then I realized that, listen, I'm not quite up to scratch here. I need to polish up my game a bit. So in a way, I was lucky. You went away, you played a lot of franchise cricket, you also went on a couple of A tours, you played for what was known as the Board 11 in the bowl section of the uh, South African domestic tournament, which would have done you a world of good. You came back in 2001 uh, in the second test match against Bangladesh at Harare Sports Club and immediately made an impression. You seemed to bowl with a lot more variation. You, you always said that you'd never been a prodigious turner or spin, but you certainly got one or two to turn quite prodigiously. What was the difference from when you made your debut in 1999 against Sri Lanka to coming back to playing and, and performing very well against Bangladesh in 2001? Oh, do you know, I mean, cheapest, just as a spinner especially, I think you have to spend so much time just grooving your action and understanding when you let the ball go, that you can actually feel it. Um, and then also trying to, like for me, trying to present the seam in a, in a manner so, that's, so that it makes it easier for the ball to spin. 
uh, when I started, I just sort of used to bowl and let the thing go. But um, after spending time with a few uh, left-arm spinners, Claude Henderson was the, one of the first guys to show me that when I when I let the ball go, your seam should basically present upright towards uh, like first or second mm-hmm. slip. And so that <clears throat> that then helps the ball to spin towards that or f- away from the batsman if he's a right-hander. So basically from the right to the left again. Um, and just little things like that, that made it made it slightly easier and um, then varying your pace around that as well. But I think also just in those, in those years, trying to learn to deal with pressure. Um, a lot of guys talk about dealing with pressure and um, how you get around it. But for me, it was more trying to actually enjoy the pressure than anything else. The moment I, I learned to enjoy the pressure situations, then it became easier and it actually became fun. But when you feel the pressure, and it's only inside your own head as such, so when you start to feel that pressure, it's how you deal with it. And then for me, I think just spending time away and playing in the board 11, um, not learning how to deal with the pressure, but actually enjoy it. Because okay. often I would open the bowling uh, for the board 11 on, in South Africa because they, they weren't that great against spin in those days as well. I mean, you're playing on a lot harder wickets, so learning to flight the ball so you get more bounce, oh, just becoming a better all-round cricketer, hey? 2001-2002 was an interesting time because you were really up against some very, very talented batsmen. So Bangladesh, obviously in those days, they weren't the force that they are now. But uh, then we had, you missed out against India, which I thought was incredibly unfortunate. Uh, and, and the excuse that was given was that the Indian batsmen play left arm spin very well. But in my opinion, a, bat, a player should always be picked on, on the performances and merit. And you merited your place in the side, uh, in my opinion. But... Yeah, um, you then played against the West Indies, which was quite difficult. Brian Lara went home, but there was uh, a certain gentleman called Carl Hooper, who you uh, were up against on quite a few occasions. Young Marlon Samuels was there. Chris Gale, very young and relatively inexperienced, was there. Then uh, after that, it was South Africa, so the likes of Gary Kirsten, Herschel Gibbs, Gibbs Jacques Cullis, Neil McKenzie. Those would be the batsmen who you bowled to. And they gave you a torrid time, didn't they? They gave everybody a torrid time. How were you able to bounce back? Because, you know, I think that's the biggest, you got to, you, you bowled very well in Bulawayo, but that I think is what made people sit up and take note was your ability to, despite the fact that you were hit straight back over your head for six, on quite a few occasions, you were able to bounce back and take wickets at very, very crucial periods. Yeah, do you know, man, <clears throat> cheapest, man, those, yeah, those series were great fun. Hey? And obviously you're playing against, in those days, the West Indies were a serious powerhouse. Um, and South Africa had just come back onto the scene, but they had some proper players as well. Um, oh, do you know, I, I, the, the more I played test cricket, uh, it's still my favourite version of cricket. Um, I just realised that you just had to try and land the ball in the, in the right area. I, I relate cricket to a lot to like chess where um, as long as I knew where I wanted to land the ball, I, I then had time to work out the batsman. So it doesn't matter that uh, maybe like some, some guys like to hit the ball through the offside, some guys like to hit the ball through the leg side. And obviously all batsmen have their favorite shot as well, that they like to play against certain bowlers. So for me, just trying to um, restrict them in those areas to not allow them to play their favorite shot. Or if they do play their favorite shot, make sure I've got a lot of fielders in that area so that they can't score easy boundaries. And then uh, having people like Heath, um, Andy Grant was also a left-arm spinner as well. Just having people like that in the team to be able to teach you to 
even though you're struggling a little bit, like like you say, sometimes you'll you'll, you'll run up and some guy like Carl Hooper just eh, man, he'd make it so effortless. Yeah, eh? very good player. Yeah, you know, very good. And just moving his feet, um, like simple things, like when you come over the wicket, he would he would open his uh, his left foot out, so it would make it easier for him to play the ball, and waiting for the ball, and just just a lot of things that I was very new to, um, because I hadn't bowled against guys of that caliber as such. So it was nice having Heath and Andy. Um, being able to talk to them on, on certain plans and trying to work out what the batsman was doing, uh, what they didn't like, so that we could just keep repeating that. And I think when I used to get hit for six, I think the most important thing is to try and put that to the, the back of your mind. Um, I think maybe playing a little bit of golf helped that as well, because often when you hit the ball, well, you know what it's like. If you hit the ball into the water, I don't know what your golf's like, do you know, but mine's shocking. Uh, my golf's never been very good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to blame my caddy all the time. You know. But just being able to try and put put the last ball into the back of your mind and to try and concentrate 100% on the next one. For me, I dealt a lot in percentages, so that making sure that I was always at 100% whenever I let the ball go. Um, if you were at 90%, obviously, then the batsman's got a 10% advantage. And so that's why I also enjoyed to like to, to chirp quite a bit as well because I was always trying to gain the advantage over the batsman. So if I could get him angry and get him to concentrate by less than 10%, I'm now 110 and he's 90. So little games like that that I like to play. Uh, just explain to the uninitiated when we speak of chirping, what would that involve? Oh, Dino, you know, just like saying good morning to the guy, trying to ruffle his feathers a little bit. Maybe his kit looks all shiny and I'll be asking him if, um, if he cleaned it the night before. Just simple things like that, hey, trying to trying to get on get on their nerves as such. Especially if someone twitched a lot, I would often say to them, "Listen, you want to try and twitch some more? Maybe you want to touch your foot." Or Neil Mackenzie from South Africa would spring to mind. Exactly, Neil Mackenzie from South Africa would spring to mind. One of the things that <clears> I noticed uh, that you would do quite often is sometimes you would give this almost exaggerated grunt when you bowled. So, you know, um, like a very long, outdrawn grunt. Was that, was that some sort of a... And in other times, you would just bowl the ball without really making any sound. Is that something that you consciously knew that you were doing? Was it, was it some form of a mind game as well? Often it was more nerves than anything else. I think when I got more... The more nervous I got, the more I would chirp and try and basically overcome if I'm having a bad day, especially like not every day is going to be perfect. It's not always going to, you're not always going to bowl really well. So I would try and make up for it in different areas. And I think the grunting often, I'd often do that on my first ball because I was very nervous to start. Um, and I just found that was a way of me just like a tennis player, the same, exactly the same thing. I, would, I just, I found it just got me over the line. You know? A release. Uh, yes, exactly. A, a, a release. Yeah. All right, so back in those days, in the early 2000s, uh, domestic cricket was very strong. It was very vibrant. There was no doubting that. So you would have had your fair tussles with certain batsmen. Now, I know the, the obvious name that would spring to mind because he was an exceptionally good player, especially of left-arm spin, was one Andrew Flower. Grant was pretty reasonable as well. Uh, I'm trying to think of Andy Blignot, uh, Sean Irvin, I guess, they're all of them. But which batsman really gave you a tough time? Or which did you enjoy bowling to? But which one also, um, you know, was there the odd occasion that a certain local batsman gave you a good working over? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you say, Andy Flower springs to mind. And Blidge hit me on the roof quite a few times all over the place at Sports Club and a couple of other grounds. But to be honest, um, when I made my first class debut um, at Harare South, the guy who who made it who basically played me the easiest as such and made it look effort, effortless was Dave Houghton. Ah. And just, you know, like in those days, I mean, he made a double hundred against Sri Lanka 
and um, in, in Bulawayo. And Murlithan was, I mean, he was prolific in those days. Mm-hmm. Hey? And to make a double hundred against someone like that, you've got you've to understand your technique against spinners. And so for me, when I talk about chess, I often think a lot about Dave because he was so good at manipulating the field. And so he would. He was one of the first guys who he played a reverse sweep, but he didn't play it with the um, the front of his bat. He played it with the back of his bat. Right, right, right. And so it, it was quite strange to watch him do things like that. But he would do things like play a fine sweep, um, and then play a reverse sweep as well. But all he was doing was manipulating the the field. So he'd be moving the fielders um, to areas where he wanted them to be, as such. So he would basically be, t- be dictating to me where he wanted his field. So it wasn't up to me. He would be moving the guys, and then he would score in areas where he was really happy with. And so it was, it was just phenomenal. I remember at the end of the game at Arari South um, and just sitting down with a few of the guys and saying, you know, like, what do you do with this guy? And he said, you know, he's, it, it's so hard because when people reach that level, it's like when you play against guys like Tendulkar and uh, Steve Waugh and... Michael Bevan was another one who could place the ball and manipulate the field as well. And Andy, to a certain extent, because he came up with a reverse sweep, meant that um, any left-arm spinner would have to have two guys behind point, whereas normally you'd only have one guy. So by moving the field around, it made it easy for him to score and just get the, the, um, the scoreboard ticking over. And so it made it very difficult. All right, so here's a nice little on-the-spot question. <clears throat> Who was the better player in Zimbabwe, David Houghton or Andrew Flower? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think when, when David was, obviously, shame, he, got a, he was a bit older when we started playing yes. test cricket. Yes. But I think if he had had the same amount of time that Andy did, um, I think he probably would have been a better player. Um, because... I mean, he was the first guy to sweep Alan Donald. I remember him doing it at Sports Club, yeah, and I nearly correct. fainted. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, you're not the first person who has said that. I, I uh, listening, remember when Zimbabwe were playing Ireland in the 2015 World Cup, and Tom Moody and Mark Nicholas were in the commentary box together, and they said straight up that um, had Houghton and Flower been of the same age, and had they both been at their peak at the same time, Mark Nicholas uh, basically said, quote, that Dave Houghton would run circles around Andy Flower. And Tom Moody agreed it by saying that he felt uh, that Dave Houghton was pretty much the was very similar to what Abe de Villiers would bring to the to the to the table now. So that he says that when he saw Abe de Villiers playing for the first time, he reminded Abe de Villiers, that is to say, reminded Tom Moody a lot of Dave Houghton. Would you would you concur with that? That's a very very big statement. Sheep as well. That is a big statement, eh? Like I said, when you think about that um, David worked out, because Harari Sports Club is a, such a bouncy wicket, that he worked out that he could get down and sweep Alan Donald. I mean, you're talking about the premier fast bowler in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Abby de Villiers is doing exactly the same things. I mean, and he's even reverse sweeping guys now. So, I, I, it's hard to compare. It, it's now when you finish cricket, you can only understand when guys talk about being difficult to compare um, players from a different era. But I think maybe if Dave had obviously been born in this 2020 area, I think oh, he would have been an absolute nightmare to... And, to and, the, and, and the difference as well, Ray, that, we, that people need to remember is that Houghton, none of, none of us really played the, any amount of cricket that, you know, even in those days, the South Africans played. We were lucky if we got five or six test matches in a year, whereas South Africa normally, you know, if they played against England 
uh, it would be a five test match series. Well, the minimum that they would get would be a three test match series. So they would end up playing 11 or 12 test matches and, you know, a couple of one day internationals. T20 cricket wasn't really, well, wasn't heard of in those days. So if Dave Houghton was a bit younger and if he'd played the amount of cricket that South Africa had played back, it, it, it would have been a very, very different situation. I'm sure of that. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a Zimbabwean's bugbear as such as that we don't, we don't get enough cricket. And so even when we did back in the, I mean, in our height of our uh, cricket, we played, on average, we played 10 to 12 test matches a year. Um, that's only one a month, you yeah. know. And then yeah. we were playing 35 one-day internationals a year, which was, which was good, but obviously not enough not for good us. Enough. No, I mean, the problem was is that guys would make 100 or, like, um, take five wickets, or we'd do well in a test series, and then we would have two months to wait for our next test series. And then we would often only play one test. Like when we went to England, we played, um, we played right at the beginning of the season, and so it was freezing. And Lords looked like um, your backyard. Their wicket looked like <laughs> the backyard compared to what it normally does like in the middle of the season. So, so very, very green. Very, so yeah for, the, yeah. yeah, for the guys who've, who've not been there and yeah. seen what it looks like, basically like what your lawn would look like in sort of mid-November, December. Yeah, that bright green tinge. Yes. Not good for spinning, eh, do you know? <laughs> Definitely not good no. for spinners. <laughs> Definitely not good for spinners. <laughs> Test cricket is something that will always be very close to any tr- true and genuine cricketer. It's always the uh, the, the peak of uh, what you'd want to do as a player. I'm sure, Ray, that you have many, many happy Test memories that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, do you know, I mean, it, it's, so, it's, it's not, when I say it's hard to explain, but playing Monday to Friday as such, so doing a, a working week, um, it's oh, it's just magnificent when you get to that day four or day five and your body is really tired but your mind is still up for it um, and trying to convince your body otherwise to get going and things like just yeah it's an, a special feeling and obviously to play against other cricketers who are phenomenal as well um, and often we were playing against some of the world's best was just yeah uh, it's like you said it's the pinnacle hey, to test yourself against people like that ultimately why it's called test cricket so, you ha- I mean, there was a time uh, when you went to India in 2002. That was your, your first trip there. So, I mean, Zimbabwe themselves had a good team. Alistair Campbell was back after spending a bit of time away due to b- poor form. But uh, you and Streak, uh, Brighton Watamba, and the rest had to bowl against the likes of Varinda Sewag, Sachin Tendulkar, Raul Dravid, Saurav Ganguly, Vivius Lakshman. That is one. I mean, I mean, what what was it? What is it like to bowl against players such as that? Do you become incredibly nervous? Does it bring the best out of you? And you you kind of forget the nerves, and you just go out there and you feel. Uh, I remember his streak always saying to me, I, I that he always felt. I don't care whether I'm bowling against. Brian Lara, who's, you know, the world's number one ranked batsman or Sachin Tendulkar, because he can hit me for four. But let me tell you, I'm just as capable as, uh, you know, of getting him out by shattering his stumps or by having him caught behind. Was that the sort of mentality that you had when you went out there to play as well? Yeah, do you know, I mean, I just loved it, eh? I think um, at the start, I think it was more just, well, it was more just a privilege bowling to those guys because you'd watched them on TV um, and growing up watching them score mega hundreds and guys like you say those I mean that top five that they had with with Raul Dravid, uh, VVS Luxman, Verinda Sewag, Sarov Ganguly and then last but not least is Sachin Tendulkar I mean my goodness it was just and also playing them at home I mean India is one of those places where when you go as a cricketer um, you, it's the only time you get to feel like a rock star 
because you, yeah, everyone knows you, everyone understands what you're about, um, and 90% of them know what you do, and so it's just, it's outstanding, Adina, and the crowds are just brilliant. I mean, of course, Andy Flower also got a huge um, amount of respect by, obviously because of that tour in uh, back in 2000 when he scored 540 runs in two test matches. So it was a quite interesting walking with Andy and, and you know, people chanting his name and, and so on. What, what was it like? <laughs> you know, a good, a good wake up for me when I got into India because obviously I'd never been to the, um, I'd been to the subcontinent, but not India. I'd been to Sri Lanka. And so the smell of the place and the, oh. just the pure heat of it as well and the, um, the amount of people that live in that place is just unbelievable. So the, the mass of people everywhere, it doesn't matter where you go, um, and we're not so used to that in Zim, obviously. And we're not used to um, crowd worship either, whereas in India it's just, it's, you know, it's just what's done there. So the, we, we landed in, I can't remember where it was, it might have been in Mumbai, and we were playing. We were about to play our first warm-up game. Anyway, <clears throat> plane landed, and we got off the plane and went into the terminal. And between the terminal and the bus, now there was this rows of reporters and people screaming and shouting. And so I'd never seen anything like this, Dina. So I thought, yeah, listen, I'm finally arrived. Eh? So mm-hmm. I puffed myself up quite a bit. Obviously, everyone's going to know who I am because this is India, man. Anyway, and of course, Andy Flower was the first the first guy to walk out uh, through the terminal to get to the bus. And there's this narrow, narrow little passageway, like only a couple of meters wide. And then, like I said, the rest is just reporters. And they're shouting and screaming and going, flower, flower, Andy, flower. And they're going nuts and the flashes are going like the paparazzi, <laughs> like you see in the movies. And uh, he gets on the bus and then eventually, uh, then Heath was the next one. And obviously they love him as well. Oh, streak, yeah. streak, oh. And then Olonga, they love him as well. Um, so they were going, oh, longer, longer, oh. And then Grant went and, and all of them carried on going and eventually it came to me. So I had my bag on my trolley and pushed my trolley into the gap and pushed out into the bunch of reporters. And Dina, it was, oh, it was horrible. Eh? You could just hear, you could hear the crickets chirping like two k's down the road and the dog barking. And... Nobody knew. So no, no one knew I was. Anyway, when I got halfway down the, the road towards where the bus was, um, some clever uh, Alec shouted from the back, physio. And so for the first half of my Indian trip, I was, everyone thought I was the physio. So it, was, <laughs> it was very humbling, eh? going there expecting to be, be, you know, to be hero-worshipped and you know, it didn't turn out like that. So uh, Uncle Nick would probably have got more of a reception than you if he was there. With you. <laughs> I think our physio got more of a reception than I did. You know. <laughs> okay, so obviously... That was very memorable. Let's let's fast forward it a little bit to 2003, a very good test series between Zimbabwe and the West Indies here in Zimbabwe. The West Indies winning the, the series by one match to nil, winning the one-day series by three matches to two, but some seriously good cricket was played by both teams. Your uh, your biggest memory, I would imagine, would be the wicket of Brian Lara when you when Blessing Mawira took a very good catch at deep mid off, I think it was to to dismiss Lara. Just talk to us about that Test match because the West Indies, courtesy uh, to uh, Ridley Jacobs, they were just able to dodge the bullet, and it would have been a wonderful win for Zimbabwe had we been able to prize out that last wicket on the final day. Yeah, you know, I mean, like you say, when it, when you've done five days of hard work, um, and especially. Because we had suffered in Bulawayo as well, because they played so well there. Um, to come to Rory Sports Club, uh, obviously one 0 down, and then to to just not be able to take that last wicket. Um, for those who didn't watch, they got 
the last pair, so numbers 10 and 11 for the West Indies, I think batted for 23 overs. I think it was around there. Um, but, yeah, just infuriating, Adina. Trying, often have, I used to have sleepless nights of that, that test match because trying to think of what I could have done differently or what, I've, what I could have tried. And, but at the end of the day, that's why it's test cricket, eh? That's why it's five days of hard slog um, and you just test it to the hilt, man. And another problem that Zimbabwe had was, if you remember, there was a lot of bad light and rain around. So we had Andy Blignot, who really ran in and actually bowled at 150 k's now. Him and Streak weren't able to bowl. So for those 23 overs that you mentioned, the West Indies then had to deal with yourself and Trevor Gripper, uh, where surely, I mean, obviously you would have loved to have taken that last wicket, but to have someone like Blignot, who really got his rhythm up, and perhaps maybe Streak as well, who was Zimbabwe's premier bowler, um, had weather conditions been different, perhaps Zimbabwe would have been able to wrap that up with the, with the, the pace of, of Blignot and the skill of streak. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it was so sad. I mean, watching them, both of them, um, just, I remember, it was so nice to watch a West Indian batsman bob and weave for a change. <laughs> not, not just us d- jumping and diving around. I mean, Andy, Andy Blignot ran in and, like you said, he, just, he was running downhill as well. Um, and just tearing in, eh? And obviously Heath, with all his experience, trying different balls like Yorkers and um, slower balls, and and just none of them, just none of them working, eh? It was, yeah, it was sad to sad to watch that. But you know what? At the end of the day, at least at least we knew we had tried everything. We, when you finish a game like that, um, it was so devastating to sit in the change room. But also good to for us to have been so close to that, eh? And to, like I said, to watch Riddy Jacobs bob and weave for a bit. I wish I was quick. I would have loved to have done that, you know. But <laughs> I had to make up with my mouth what I didn't have in speed with my arm. Speaking of mouths, and uh, we'll, we'll get to the reason why I talk about mouths right now, because um, unfortunately uh, things then uh, started to go rather uh, pear-shaped for Zimbabwe cricket a year later. But uh, it didn't affect you because you were lucky enough to land a three-year contract with <coughs> Worcestershire. Now, uh, unfortunately, Worcestershire obviously uh, is is in England, and that's where one of the county sides that that play cricket. Uh, you missed out, as we've already alluded to, on the tour to England in uh, 2000 and in 2000. And th- you you didn't play in the Test match, and t- yes, you did. You played in the Test match in 2003. But the reason that I'm getting to is 2000. Graham Hick had a bit of a comeback. Obviously, Graham Hick, Zimbabwe born and bred, scored 100 against Zimbabwe at Lords, but his streak got the better of him, as was often the case. Um, unfortunately, you missed out on the tour, but you had the great pleasure then from 2003 up until 2007 playing alongside Graham Hick, a man who at that point had already scored over 100 first-class hundreds. What was it like sharing the dressing room with such an incredibly talented batsman? Unfortunately, he never really delivered the goods at test level, but let's, let's forget about that. Let's just focus on what Hick achieved for Worcestershire and what sort of a person was Graham Hick or is Graham Hick yeah I do know I mean just I always wanted to play county cricket eh? you obviously watched on the TV um, and you you always wonder if you could have done all right there so for me to get a chance to go across to England and go and play county cricket was so much fun Uh, just yeah such different conditions and uh, weather wise and then obviously to be put next to Graham Hick as well um, something special eh? I remember after being in the change room for about a week, I think Graham was the only guy that could actually understand me as well. The, we had obviously because of the, a lot of the Englishmen that we had there, their lingo wasn't quite up to scratch with mine. <clears throat> with the so many slang words that we use in our English language, 
where we mix it up, up with quite a bit of Shona and any other language that we've managed to pick up along the way. And Graham, he still had a, he knew what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he would basically be my translator as such. So. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, he, uh, just spending time with him was so much fun. He talked a lot about percentages as well. Mm. Um, and more than that, he would, he, I mean, uh, one comment that stuck with me, I remember batting with him and he was on, 16, I think it was on about 180. Yeah. And, uh, and he said to me, you know what, Reza, it's only fun to bet after you've got 100. And I, I just, right. yeah, and I just remember thinking that's so, it's so important that we're so many of us get so excited to make, make 100. I only made a few, Dina, you know, and most of them in the backyard against my kids. But <laughs> it, it's, only, it, it's so true where um, if you can push past that barrier once you've made 100 to carry on going after that, when you think about all the times where you've got to scratch and try and work so hard to get to 10, it, it made so much sense. And I think that's why he's just the prolific guy that he was. Because when he got to 100, he, it, it was almost like he realized that now he's in the game. It wasn't, it wasn't like he was striving to make 100. He was looking past that. And so that kind of mindset, you know, it shocked me a bit eh, to be able to understand that. And a very tall and imposing sort of figure at the crease stands at six foot four, and he's not the smallest of people either. Broad-shouldered, very, very big, strong uh, uh, forearms and biceps, so quite formidable to bowl at. But I remember you once telling me that he had this habit, because Hick is a man of very few words, as well, you will tell people better than I can, but he doesn't really speak much, though. But he had this habit when somebody annoyed him, that he used to bang his bat on the ground, and then uh, you knew that you were in trouble. So that, that just tell us about, was that, was that something that uh, you knew straight away when, when you and your teammates saw uh, the big silent man banging that bat on the ground, that we, we, we possibly could be in for uh, an enjoyable day of cricket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, started off, he, um, he, he started off banging his bat on the floor, and then after a while, I don't know when it was he changed, he, started, he used to bang his thigh pad, you know. No. And so um, I didn't know that until we, I walked into the change room and we were playing, I think we were playing Yorkshire, and some a 17, 18-year-old, it was, and at Worcester, the wicket was always, it, there was always a bit in it for the seamers. Yes. And this young upstart um, started to give Graham uphill, and Graham, was, Graham had just turned 40, I think, then or 40, <laughs> 40 or 41, and he was still strong as a bull. Um, and obviously the wicket was help, helping this little seamer and uh, Graham started to bang his thigh pad. And I remember Vikram Solanke turned and said, oh, watch this. And uh, for two balls, Graham let two balls go and then he took, one, he took two steps down the wicket and slammed him over, over the New Road Pavilion into, well, not into the river, but close. And I remember just thinking, cheapest, yeah. We're in for it. Exactly. We're in, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in for it. Yeah, Alan Donald um, would uh, often talk about Graham Hick, and it was such a pity that he never delivered at test match level. Um, obviously, unfortunately, there were reasons for that. He just, I don't know, if, if he was a little bit, um, just the nerves that got the better of him. Did he ever talk about that? Did he ever explain why he could never score the runs at test level that he did? Again, because, you know, Alan Donald would say, it's so funny because, you know, I've been at the receiving end of Graham Hick when I played for Warwickshire, he would say, where he would make mincemeat, I'd bowl him bounces, he would hook, uh, none of this bobbing and weaving, he would hook, he would pull with authority, he would cover drive, he would cut, but come test match time, Graham Hick was all over the place and he spoke about um, Hick, you know, obviously toying with the likes of Waka Yunus and Wasim Akram and uh, and even Kirtley Ambrose, but those, all of those bowlers that I've mentioned, Kirtley Ambrose from the West Indies and Wakan Wasim, obviously from Pakistan, when it came time for Hick to play at Lords in a test match, they had the better of him. Why was that, do you think? 
Yeah, Sam, it's so, it's so hard to say that. I mean, you, you look at his test record and it's still, I mean, it's still good, mm. cheapest, you know. Average of 35, 36. Yeah, exactly, which is a good record. Yes. But like you would say, you would expect him to be up in the 50s with yeah. guys like Tindulka and them because ah, just, the, just the way that he was. But, I mean, that's, that's why it's called test cricket, eh? because it doesn't matter um, with things like that. And then, like, we had a, we had a guy in our change room called Guy Whittle. And Guy managed to make a double hundred before Jacques Cullis did. And so you think about that for two seconds and you it suddenly you understand that that that's what gave me hope as well as a cricketer, that you didn't have to be someone special um to play test cricket. You just had to be able to I just had to be able to land the ball on a coin. And then once I could do that I could play. It wasn't a problem. And I think maybe Graham I think maybe just worked out um everything a little bit later in life as well. Um but yeah, shame, and I always felt sorry for him. I think he got, he also got jostled around a lot in the order when you yeah, look at where yeah, um, all the numbers where he batted as well. Absolutely. Um, and I think sometimes also, even though Graham um, went to England when he was really young, you still always labelled a foreigner. Um, so I think that also played on his mind. I always wondered if uh, what it would have been like to see if he had played at home. It's a very, very valid point. I, I remember having a, a good long chat uh, with Ramiz Raja, uh, the former Pakistani opener and now well-known commentator. And he said that it felt the, the likes of Javed Miandad, you know, the older players, Javed Miandad, who played yeah. against Hick regularly, they felt that it had Graham perhaps been able to play county cricket overseas but still play for Zimbabwe, that he would have been a considerably better test player playing for Zimbabwe than what he would have been uh, playing for England, which is, which is an interesting observation, but one that does make uh, a great deal of sense, I think. Um, because he would have had less pressure to deal with. Mm. And um, you may have found that names such as Alistair Campbell and quite possibly even Grant Flower uh, would have been playing a lot more cricket for the board 11 if you'd still had Graham Hick uh, in, in, you know, in the middle and top order. Uh, let's, let's move on now, Razor. Let's, let's move on the clock. Let's talk about uh, current situations. I know that uh, a lot of very unfortunate things have been happening in terms of Zimbabwe cricket, and you wrote a very very good and hard-hitting article about a month ago. How do you feel about the current state of affairs in the sport that you love so much and in this country that you love so very much? Yeah, do you know, I mean, <clears throat> it's so sad, eh? Because um, obviously for me, I had, because I've played with Heath, um, uh, for me it was really sad to see the way that they dealt with him. But not only that, just because um, I'm so passionate about having local people um, basically locals coach Zimbabwe because we've been all around the world and seen how we've had so many coaches from different different places and I'm not I'm not saying that they're not good enough but it, it certainly hurts a lot more when um when like Zimbabwe lose and Heath is coaching I know just little things like Heath and I would uh, go out to dinner after they'd lost a one-day game and um, even in Bulawayo we'd go to a small restaurant and would be sitting in the corner, and you could you could see how it, it was just hurting him, hey, mm-hmm. and playing the game over and over in his mind, and whether he could have done something differently, and also just the local guys being so sad that like a lot of times got close and and lost the game, um, and then also the euphoria as well when you win, uh, like you would see how how many people would get behind Heath and just be so happy. Uh, yeah, so for me, I think it, it's so important that. I think we've been, for years, we've been looking outside our borders and trying to find coaches from other places. But to be honest, with the amount of politics um, and things that work so differently in Zimbabwe alone, I think having someone who's a local makes such a difference. 
and I really, I was really enjoying uh, his style of coaching as well, and everything that he was bringing to the table here. And then for Zimbabwe cricket to turn around and say that he's a racist, I think it's, oh, it's, it's just sad, you know. I think a lot of the, we've got a huge problem where a lot of the board members or most of the board members haven't played cricket, um, and now you've, you've, you've got so many things in in place at the moment that are just not working. There's no club cricket. Um, there's no none of the junior cricket is being looked after. There's no grassroots level it's, at all, and it's not about race. It's not about anything, but it's just about looking after cricket because um, this is the one sport that our country is really good at, and we've done well on the world stage at it. Um, so we just need to keep it going. Do you honestly feel that there could <clears throat> be a change that that it, because it, right now it seems pretty hopeless. It doesn't seem as if the ICC cared too much. It doesn't seem as if uh, the SRC in Zimbabwe cared too much as to, despite the fact that you know, they said they'll do investigations, but it doesn't really seem as if they really care all that much. So is there any possibility of it changing for the good? Because as an outsider looking in, it doesn't seem as if there's any light at the end of the tunnel, does there? Yeah, do you know, I mean, I'm always trying to, trying to be positive the whole time. And I think there is, I'm sure there's scale for change, eh? Um, in our country alone, we've seen a massive change in the last 12 months. So I'm hoping that it'll be the same thing with Zim Cricket. Um, but at the moment, we just we don't have people there to be able to explain the way forward. Um, the problem is, is that, like I said again, a lot of the board members haven't played cricket. Um, and I think, therefore, they find it very difficult for um, them to be able to map the way forward. And until we have people read black, white, it doesn't matter what color they are, but just mapping the way forward for us to be able to move forward as a nation. Countries like Bangladesh and Ireland and those guys are moving forward fast and we're getting left in the dust. And the longer that we take to repair our cricket, um, the, f- the further we're going to have to catch up. So for me, it's just, it's just being able to try and bite the bullet and all of us just being humble enough to come together and say, right, listen, this is not about us or about any individuals as such. It's more about cricket in the country. And also just the, the hope for youngsters to be able to do the same thing. It's so sad to be seeing people leave left, right and centre to go to other countries to try and become a cricketer as such and become a test cricketer. We've already lost so many people. I mean, Gary Balance, just one one name in the hat compared to how many. Current um, brothers as well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's so sad to see those guys and especially how passionate their dad was for Zimbabwe and, um, and the cricket here as well. But it just shows that we can produce those those kind of cricketers. We just need... Um, we just need a plan and for people to be able to get out the way and um, not not try and promote themselves so much but more promote cricket mm-hmm. and worry about what's happening with this with the great game that we've got in our country. All right, so a few light-hearted, short and uh, sharp questions. Uh, your favourite test match when you played, which one would that be? Oh, it'd have to be my first one, Dino. Getting your test cap in, um, apart from the, obviously the misstumping, but... <laughs> Yeah, to be in the changing with so many guys that you've watched grow up and legends, and oh, that's something special, eh? Your baggy green. Favourite one day international? Uh, I'm trying to think, do you know? Whew. Uh, probably, I, I mean, I know it sounds corny again, but it's probably your debut. I remember having a chipping match with Nasser Hussain on my first game because we had scored 180 and we were way behind the eight ball and Nasser was just making it look nice and easy, so I thought I'd try and stir up a hornet's nest. Well, he gave it back to me, boy, and I loved every minute of it, day. Eh? I still remember the conversations as well. Just brilliant. Uh, your favorite coach who coached you, who would that be? Uh, probably Swampy Marsh, eh? I think he was, he was one of my favorite coaches. And also there was another guy called Steve Geach. 
He used to oh, coach me. me. Yes, wow, used to... that's a forgotten name almost. Yeah, Stephen Geach. That's it. And he's now in Australia. He used to coach me when I was um, I was in Form One. And I remember in those days I was a, I was more of a better than a um, more of a better than a bowler as such. And if if I got out, the whole team would skittle. And he said to me, "You make sure you don't move from this place, or I'm going to thrash you." <laughs> <laughs> I've often had a good laugh with him, but he's a yeah, legend of a man. Again, uh, Swampy Marsh. Uh, th- that was the nickname for Jeff Marsh, who obviously uh, played cricket for Australia. Very good coach as well, Jeff Marsh. Um, and of course, uh, that was the nickname that uh, that he had was Swampy Marsh. Your your favourite captain that you played under, Razor, who would that be? Uh, def- well, it's always Heath for me. Hey? We could always have a good laugh. Um, I remember the one game when Adam, when Matthew Hayden got that world record, that 380. And then Adam Gilchrist on the other side made 100 off 69 balls That's or right. something. And, yeah, and most of them were off me. Um, and while Adam was smashing me, um, Heath was knackered, so he, he wasn't bowling. So he came and put his arm around me and said... How about if we give uh, Torch, which is Stuart Carlisle in those days, if we give Torch a bicycle, we can, he can patrol like the mid-off boundary. And Trevor, Trevor Gripper in those days, he said, Jan Cripps, we can give him a ladder. And all these guys and saying we, give, we can give uh, Blidge, Andy Blichner, a motorbike and he can tear around. And I remember I said to him, so if you don't want a ball, you shut up and go over that side. And the funniest thing was in, in the evening, the commentators thought that we were trying to hatch a plan um, to deal with Gilchrist, but we were actually just giving each other a hard time and cussing each other. And, and I think that's the, the very important thing is to, I mean, obviously the, the, the team that, that, that you mentioned um, was an exceptionally professional outfit, but at the same time they understood that you could still have fun, but, but be very, very competitive as well. Whereas now these days we, we're not entirely sure what sort of a team we have, how professional they are, and how much they're really loving the game because of all the things happening off the field. Yeah, shame, and it's so hard for them as well to concentrate and to be able to. Like I'm, I'm going to say it again. At the end of the day, it's not about learning to deal with the pressure, but to actually enjoy it. Um, and exactly like what I was, like what you were saying with me and Heath, being able to enjoy the pressure, even though Gilchrist is hitting me for massive sixes, um, and most of the times I have to replace the balls because they got dents in them and things, but. To be able to actually enjoy it and um, to realize that, listen, this is, this, it, it happens to a lot of guys as well. But um, the quicker you can learn to enjoy it, um, the easier it becomes when you fail as well to get over it um, and to wake up the next day and get on with it and, and try and do better the following day. Um, but I've forgotten what your, other, your question was. I've got a lot of us. Oh, yes. Uh, well, yeah, just basically. So that was your favorite captain. Um, and we got around to because uh, just obviously talking about the um, the difference. So he's streak your favorite captain, Steve Geach and Jeff Marsh, your favorite coach. <laughs> Um, just to just to conclude, because uh, it's been a, it's been a good and a long chat. But uh, you also spent one season. You played uh, admittedly one game. Just very briefly talk about what it was like being a part of the Indian Premier League and playing for the Mumbai Indians, which included players such as Sachin Tendulkar and Andrew Simons. Yeah, do you know cheapest man? What a Oh, it's just brilliant, eh? I remember getting the phone call. It was so bad because we were down south. We were in Durban on holiday. And um, I got the phone call from Sean Pollock, who was the coach of the Mumbai Indians at that time. And I actually thought it was a prank call. So <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was one of my mates um, pulling the pee and, and uh, yeah, just having a laugh. So anyway, I was in spa and wandering down the aisles and yeah, chatting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was talking about money and... Um, how are we going to get you there? We can fire off. And I thought, so I obviously thought it was one of my mates. And only halfway through the conversation did I actually twig that, hold on, this is actually happening. So it was, um, 
Then I had to run a few hours down to go and find my wife to, to tell her what was happening with Sean Pollock still on the phone. Okay. Um, and my wife was uh, eight months pregnant or seven and a half months pregnant at that stage. So she was fairly cheeky. And so it was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a quite an interesting conversation. I wish I'd taped that. Um, but oh, the IPL, I mean, we are so special. Eh? Big crowds, lots of noise, lots of pressure. And spending time in the change room, it's so different playing against. I played against Sachin and Andrew Simons and quite a few of the other guys that were in the change room. But then um, to be in the change room in the same team with them, it's just such a different dynamic. Um, and just the way that guys go about, the way they go about things, their training. Um, and also it, it's so nice to see that other guys get nervous as well. I remember watching Sachin and we were playing a pretty tough game in Delhi. Um, and I remember I could see the nerves were getting to him. But after a while, I could see that he, he had found a couple of ways, obviously, in how to get over it and how to deal with the pressure um, and how to enjoy the pressure. But, yeah, I just loved it, eh? tearing around and having fun. Ray Price, it's been an absolute joy, privilege and pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming to Dean at Stumps. Thank you for taking time out. It's been a long interview, but it's been a great deal of fun. And uh, I think a lot of players or, or fans, should I say, would like to see you getting involved, whether it's at under-19 level or even getting involved with the national team and, and, and just uh, really, you know, stamping your authority. It's been a joy talking to you and we wish you all the very best for whatever your future endeavours may be. Oh, Dino, thanks so much, man. Thanks for all the memories and, you know, clearing out the cobwebs of <laughs> a lot of the <laughs> memories and things that i got in my head. But, yeah, man, uh, good luck to all the, all the guys who are aspiring to play cricket. Um, never give up, guys. There's always a place... Doesn't matter whether you bat number nine or you don't bowl, yeah, just keep trying, keep enjoying yourself, man. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. And what a fantastic interview that was. Raymond Razor Price, former left arm spinner of Zimbabwe. Goodness me, he pretty much unpacked his entire life uh, up to that point. So just a reminder that that uh, recording was done two years ago, but it is still completely timeless. Thank you very much indeed for listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. We will be back again with somebody very special pretty soon. Until then, stay safe and uh, we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Yeah, Dean, and it's such, a, it's such a privilege working with kids. Eh? You've been listening to Dean at Stumps. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast.